Hello and welcome to another one of the famous at this point fight site interviews. Once again, I am uh, hosting uh, Ben Cohn. Uh, joining me today, we have two guests. One is our very own Fights and member, Matt Joya, and we also have Alex Eklund, the co-founder of Master Sky Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, Matt, Alex, how are you doing? How's everything? I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm here with you guys, so I'm really good. <laughs> Alex. Thank you. All right. Uh, first, before we begin, uh, I wanted to make sure to tell everyone to please go visit visit thefightsite.com. Uh, you're going to be treated to a plethora of phenomenal articles and content by fantastic writers and content creators. Uh, I really urge every single person who's interested in the analytical side of fighting to go and check them out. We have fantastic interviews as well. Uh, also, make sure that you check out the fight site on Patreon. You can come and support us if you'd like. If you want, there's also some fantastic extra content that you'll be uh, allowed to, to be privileged to see. Uh, you get to join the Discord server, ask questions on the podcasts. Uh, you can do fight study, whatever your heart desires. There's a tier for it. So make sure that you check out the fight site on Patreon. Uh, Matt, I'm going to let you take the lead on uh, this. But the first thing I want to do, Alex, is ask you about your jujitsu journey. Um, Tell us how you got started in the sport. You know, I know that when I was watching the, G the first year of video, you talked about how you really didn't have a lot of competition success until you were a purple belt. Uh, just tell us how you started, how you got to, you know, your competition success and the G role, please. Um, I mean, I did uh, um, originally from Ukraine mm -hmm. and uh, like Eastern European uh, parents, they believe that, you know, every kid should do martial arts. And, you know, my dad, he showed me blood sport when I was like, you know, maybe seven or eight years old. And then, um, you know, I did some karate. Um, I did some judo. Um, you know, I was kind of like a chubby kid. I was never like really good at it or into it. And then when I was a teenager, I was 17. I, you know, I wanted to, you know, I had this like urge to do something and uh, I wanted to do martial arts again. Um, you know, obviously UFC was a, um, also like a big inspiration. And uh, I found a local gym in Brooklyn. It's, uh, you know, where I still live, uh, Brooklyn BJJ. And um, I was there for a couple of years. And um, Brooklyn BJJ, it's a, a great school, but they're not really into like competitions. They have like a different kind of focus. So, you know, I was interested in competing. So uh, Vitor Shalin had just moved uh, to New York City at that point. Um, and uh, I decided to go check it out. And as soon as I checked it out, I really loved the training environment. And, you know, it was, he was just building it up, uh, building up the gym from scratch. And, um, you know, I started training with him and I trained with him for um, I think maybe like from eight to 10 years, you know, quite a long, you know, time. And then um, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm and my partner Van, we decided to open up our own gym. And as of now, it's just uh, where we're training at full time. So that's been pretty much my journey so far. Matt. All right. Uh, thank you for coming on with us, Alex. Um, you're most known for uh, your G-Roll system. How did you come to find out about the G-Roll and uh, develop such an intricate system with a uh, unknown move of sort? You know, like, um, I think, you know, even it's funny, you know, we, we you know, now I haven't taught for two months, but I felt like, you know, up until these two months, I was kind of getting into a real groove with teaching. And, you know, a lot of the students were able to retain a lot of the stuff that, you know, I was showing and all the instructors were showing in the gym. And, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm, you know, a few years away from, you know, really peaking as an instructor and, you know, being a good instructor, somebody that, you know, 
I, I myself would, would think is, is, is a, you know, a strong instructor. Um, but with that said, I was always like a terrible student, you know, in public school and middle school, high school, like college, I barely, you know, and actually in jujitsu too, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that my, like I was the person in class when Shaolin or others were showing moves, I'm trying to like, you know, see what else I can do or see something that's similar but different. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. I think it stemmed from that. So also when I was rolling, I was always trying to like, you know, find like different ways to do things. And, you know, I was always getting my guard passed and have guard is just something that you kind of hold on to for dear life. And I would spend a lot of time there. And in Shaolin school, um, everybody specializes, you know, those that roll with Van and others know the 110% pass. Um, so a lot of people like that. It's like the weave leg, uh, like weaving the arms between the legs and pressure passing through. So, you know, to, you know, to combat that, I would start to cross my ankles and then, you know, Shellen a long time ago showed uh, this uh, sweep, like uh, the, a lot of people call it a Shellen sweep. Um, you know, you grab the pants, you grab the sleeve, and then you, you kind of knock the person over with your knee. And then if they come into you, you do a backflip and you, you flip them uh, backwards. That's the combination. And I, I try to like do this sweep in Nogi. And, you know, I just thought to myself, let me just do a push up because I don't have a sleeve to grab. And after that, it worked. And I just kept trying it. And my teammates started to try it. And, you know, we started getting some success with it. And then, you know, little by little, year after year, the, you know, so to, so to speak, the system, you know, developed. Okay. Um, I know there is a, like a large gap in time between your first uh, G-Roll instructional and then your second one that you released with Grappler's Guide. Uh, yeah. I can't rec uh, recommend that one enough. Uh, I know the second one focused a lot more on uh, leg entanglements. Uh, when did you start to add um, 411 entries or 5050 entries to the G-Roll? Yeah, you know, like uh, Shaolin, you know, he was a you know, pretty traditional coach. Um, he was way ahead of his time. You know, when he, he was competing and, you know, when he was teaching us, it was, you know, a lot of, you know, amazing stuff, like cutting edge stuff. But also he's, you know, pretty traditional sense of he doesn't really teach uh, leg locks or leg lock defense. So actually, you know, Van and I, we only started like doing leg locks and, you know, looking into it other than the straight ankle lock and other than, you know, a toe hold here and there at Black Belt. And, you know, we really, it was like a new toy. Um, so, you know, started to really enjoy it. And, you know, it became almost like a, like a new martial art, you know, because it, it opened up so many, you know, pathways and so many ideas and so many submissions, right? So um, it just all fell together because, you know, the G-roll also is susceptible to leg locks too. So I had to be on both the offensive and the defensive. So I feel like my knowledge uh, expanded on that quite a bit. And that was, you know, yes, uh, as you said, the biggest difference between the first version and the second. So, um... I know you worked under, uh, you, uh, sorry, I learned under Vitor Shaolin, uh, and then for the second part of your career, uh, you've been operating uh, Master Skaya. Uh, how has it changed yourself as a martial artist, um, going from being under somebody to having to develop something all on your own? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, you know, because, you know, when I was training with Shaolin, like I was teaching there too, but like anytime there was an issue, you know, the, and I was like, all right, go to Shaolin, you know, talk to him. You know, and now I didn't have I don't have that luxury. So now people come to me with all sorts of issues and, you know, I have to help them. And, you know, I have to, you know, that's my job right now. So, you know, that was probably uh, the biggest uh, change. Um, also, um, uh, before I had no uh, worries about anybody but myself, you know, I can be purely selfish. You know, I can just roll and not care about anything really except, you know, my own improvement, whereas now 
I'm responsible not only for myself, but I'm responsible for others. So that responsibility is 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 a you know very uh, rewarding um, obstacle and challenge that I, I've uh, encountered. But um, I love it. You know, I think it's it's really awesome, and I'm I'm all for you know win-win situations. You know, why not make myself better and make you know those around me better at the same time. So I was watching your uh, early today your uh, your battle with Nick Pace uh, from the Rise Invitational. Yeah. Um, can you talk about your uh, Kamora game uh, used both offensively and defensively? I know most people probably know you for the um, G roll, um, but how is it learning like a Kamora system, which is probably more readily available uh, knowledge wise compared to the G roll, where you you're most likely the uh, top expert in that one position in the world? Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, actually, um, there's a there's a couple of people also that do very similar games too. Um, the two of them are Samir Shantri and Kyle Terra. Um, you know, it's it, it, it's it's a little bit different, but it's it's almost the same stuff. You know, and you know, I don't really care about it or mind it. You know, the G roll is kind of like a it's it's almost like a little bit of a joke. Um, you know, kind of you know naming and all that kind of stuff. Like I, I don't I don't really care too much about it, but I, I do appreciate you saying that. Um, and and with that said. Um, Actually, my first instructor, Gene Dunn, um, he was a specialist in the Kimura. And then actually, when I first met Shaolin, um, I, I saw his highlights. So I assumed that he, his favorite submission was the arm triangle. And I remember, you know, I was like a 19-year-old kid and I came up to him with my eyes like this, you know, and I was like, hey, Shaolin, so what's your favorite submission? And he told me, he's like, hey, you know, it's Kimura. I love the Kimura. And I don't know, I think the combination of both of my coaches really loving the Kimura made me like want to search it, you know, all the time. And before, like, you know, doing the G-roll and before doing all that other stuff, um, I would just look for the Kimura from everywhere. And when I was a white belt, I remember there was a class with Gene and he said, you know, if you have a Kimura grip, never let it go. And I just stayed with that for the last 14 years. Like, I will never let a Kimura grip go unless the person escapes out of it or unless I'm about to get armbarred, you know. Otherwise, I'm keeping, you know, I'm keeping it. And um, I know there's some, you know, legendary coaches and fighters in the world also that, um, don't teach it as much, you know, for, you know, valid reasons. And, you know, uh, I kind of like that. I think, you know, I think the Kimura is much more than just, a, you know, just a submission, right? So, you know, a lot of people use it for, you know, transitions and use it to attack other stuff. So, you know, I, I really love it. And I think it's, um, it's really cool, too, because you can do a gi no gi and, you know, you can, you know, do it from every single position as well. So it seems that the biggest... Um... Uh, advent in both the, uh, the G-Roll game and the overall uh, metagame in uh, Nogi Jiu-Jitsu has been the implementation of leg locks. Um, we've seen that with Craig Jones and his 411 uh, honey hole or saddle position. And then the Lachlan Giles, of course, his legendary run, uh, this ADCC. Do you have a preference for uh, either position when it comes to attacking the legs? Oh, what, what, was the, what are the choices that I have, Matt? Oh, uh, the saddle position and then uh, the 50-50 slash 80-20. Yeah, you know, I was kind of like, you know, I, I, I felt like I was like a couple of years behind, you know, because then I, I hear Lachlan saying like, you know, yeah, you know, the outside and Cochran, the 50-50 is, you know, much stronger than the saddle. And I'm like, man, I just spent the last three years like trying to perfect my saddle. So like, you know, uh, but, but yeah, you know, it makes a lot of sense if somebody's like really good um, at escaping the saddle. Um, it's, it's hard to, to keep them there. Um, and it's also much harder to get the saddle than it is to get 50-50 and, and some of the other leg entanglements. Um, but still, I still prefer the saddle. I think uh, it's really strong. Um, and I think, you know, the, you know, besides Lachlan and Craig, you know, the other person that's the biggest innovator for leg locks in the game is Eddie Cummings. 
And Eddie Cummings, um, you know, I was studying a lot of footage on him and, you know, he's been, you know, he hasn't been on the scene lately, but, you know, the last uh, that I've seen of him, he's made some, you know, incredible uh, advancements to the saddle, um, such as tucking the toe to the, uh, to the closed butt cheek. Uh, that makes it harder for the person to escape. So I think, you know, if you have a really strong saddle, um, you know, offensively, you can, you can do a lot with it. Um, plus, uh, you know, obviously you're, you're safer within it than you are in 50-50, at least for me. You know, because I'm still working on my 50-50, you know, both offense and defense. So you just talked about uh, watching Eddie Cummings. Um, how much does tape study play a part of developing your game? You know, like uh, Van and I, I think both of us are kind of self-taught, to be honest. You know, like uh, uh, we learned a lot from Shaolin and, you know, we learned a lot from the coaches that, uh, that were there. Um, and Van's game more so resembles Shaolin and the coaches there. My game is kind of like, you know, all over the place. And, you know, I took a, a lot of uh, inspirations from Shaolin in regards to mindset, in regards to, you know, how to fight, in regards to how to train. Um, but as far as instruction goes and as far as techniques go, like I'm kind of just, you know, all over the place and on my own. And it's largely due to tape, tape study. You know, I watch a lot of fighters and I try to, you know, just see little things that I like from each one. And then I try it. And if it works, I just get obsessed with it and, you know, keep trying it over and over. Then I try to teach it and I try to have other people, you know, also be successful with it. And then kind of, you know, let the ball roll from there, so to speak. But I think it's so important. And, you know, just to add a little bit onto that, um, a lot of people uh, watch instructionals. I do, too. I think instructionals are great. But I think um, the most important thing to watch is actual fights and just seeing, you know, what's working and not working real time and also it's like it's a little bit less boring sometimes i, I don't feel like i'm gonna you know lecture and when i'm watching some fights as opposed to you know some of these lengthy instructionals yeah i've seen your uh breakdowns on the master sky uh youtube page i can't uh can't uh, endorse them enough they're uh, absolutely phenomenal thank you um so we we're talking earlier about the 411 and uh or saddle position and 50 50. Do you think we're at the end of that evolution or uh, do you have any idea of where uh, the uh, leg entanglements are going to go next? Because we've seen Gordon Ryan have so much uh, success at ADCC with uh, using mainly back takes from those positions. Um, so do you have any thoughts about where the leg lock entanglements are going to go next in the BGJ metagame? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think what happened was um, there was a huge exploitation um, because a lot of people uh, that were, you know, world champions and, you know, training for, you know, decades, uh, this was an area where they were uh, lacking. And this was an area that they didn't really, you know, uh, look into too much. And a lot of people like Gordon and others came on the scene and were able to demonstrate how effective it is, right? Um, and I think um, maybe we're maybe a year or two away from the peak of the leg locks where kind of everybody's on the same page. Because it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like business. Let's say there's a bunch of coffee shops in the neighborhood. And let's say one of them starts to, you know, give you uh, alternative milks. You know, like now they're going to give you not only regular milk. Now you've got oat milk and you've got almond milk and stuff like that. And then the, next, the one next door, they start doing it. And then, you know, everybody's going to kind of just follow along. So I think that's kind of what's happening with leg locks. So um, I think we're at the point where like maybe eight out of the 10 coffee shops have the leg locks so to speak. Um, so we're almost there. Um, and I think uh, people and others have said it before me, and I agree with them. I think the next uh, step is going to be uh, incorporating uh, takedowns and incorporating wrestling and incorporating 
like uh, positional control and pressure uh, within jujitsu um, and using that to, you know, uh, win fights. Um, and that side with leg locks and stuff like that is, you know, I think going to be, you know, the deciding factor. Um, and two guys that, you know, we see like some young guys like William Tackett, he's kind of showing that now, you know, he's, you know, being a lot of uh, leg lockers with like pressure and passing and things like that. And I think that's going to be kind of the next, uh, the next trend, so to speak. Do you think that uh, guys like Nick Rodriguez and uh, from from Marcelo's Hudson Taylor, who came in and nearly, you know, only lost two nothing to Cyber Abreu as a yeah. purple belt? Do you think it's going to be like an influx of ex wrestlers and people like that, who are really just going to come in and change the jujitsu game again? You know, uh, yeah, I think so, and I think like um, two two people that come to mind that are you know uh, you know going to go down in history as the greatest, uh, the Miao brothers. You know, a long time ago, or not even that long ago, like maybe four or five years ago, when they were purple and brown belts, they were heavily criticized for, oh, only doing barambolos and only playing guard. And now we see, uh, the, you know, we see how good their guard passing is. And, and now we see how good their wrestling is. Mm-hmm. And I think what's going to happen is a lot of uh, guard players are going to kind of follow suit. And not necessarily are we going to see an influx of these wrestlers like, Nick Rodriguez and Hudson Taylor, but we're just going to see more sport jiu-jitsu people uh, incorporating uh, wrestling and takedowns and, you know, not getting swept, like keeping the top position, uh, understanding pressure, understanding, you know, how to control somebody more so. I think that's going to be what's going to happen. And if we get more wrestlers like Nick Rodriguez and Hudson Taylor, that, that'll be awesome too, you know. Well, I, I don't yeah. know. If it'll be awesome for maybe for the viewers. I don't know for <laughs> for the jujitsu guys. It's not going to be so great. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that um that change in the metagame is going to mainly be at the higher weight classes? Just because I know both of those guys are, of course, at the ultra heavyweight. Or do you think that's going to be something that s- starts there and then slowly trickles down to like sixty-six kilograms, seventy-seven kilograms, uh, based on ADCC rules? Yeah, I think um, I think it'll be kind of all over. I think it'll be everywhere. You know, it's interesting. You're absolutely right. You know, mostly uh, we see uh, like uh, less guard pulling in the higher weight classes. We see more wrestling and judo take the exchanges in the higher weight classes. But I think little by little, you know, over the years that may change. And, you know, it has to do also with the rules too. You know, in my opinion, I think takedowns uh, or a clean takedown at the very least in IBJJF and other tournaments that follow the rules – uh, should be four points, you know, and I think that would incentivize people to train more takedowns um, because, yeah, like it's like it's much less risk to pull guard and we'll go for a sweep if that's going to be the same two points as a takedown, which may be risky. And, you know, it's going to be it's going to be, you know, not enough return on your investment, so to speak, to train it and, you know, kind of add it to your game. So do you think this development would be mainly towards um ADCC or other uh, paid promotions like Fight to Win rather than IBJJF, uh, Nogi Worlds or competitions like that? That's an interesting question. I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, there are quite a few people that uh, they compete in all of them. Um, so it'll kind of trickle down, you know, universally. Um, but there are some people that just specialize in IBJJF and, you know, they do a, such a great job at winning IBJJF tournaments with pure strategy. Um, and, you know, we all know those competitors, a lot of times they're criticized. Um, I don't criticize them because, you know, listen, if you're gonna go compete, you're gonna do whatever it takes to win. Um, but I think it's gonna be kind of a universal. I think it'll be, you know, little by little. And I think that will be one of the best changes to happen. Uh, but, and I hope that's what's gonna happen. 
Right, ben, do you have any other questions uh, on the G rule? Yeah, I actually did want to speak specifically about the G rule because one of the things that I really enjoy when I was watching your original um, your original G rule series is that it's it, I know I note the versatility of it, and you're consistent. You keep going like, well, okay, so we do this, and then he does this to stop it, and then we do this, and it's consistently a step by step by step by step. Over how long of a course? Over the course of how long did it take to really? go through all of those stages because I assume that you you learned all of these defenses by trial and error and in competition and in training people were doing these things to you and then you're like oh this is how we counter it over the course of how long did it take to really develop all of those counters and attacks you know it's uh it took many years you know and it took a long time um and also um, I didn't do it alone as well and um, because what happened was you know I showed it to my training partners and then, um, you know, I was teaching uh, my primary uh, source of income at that point when I was working at Shalins was private lessons. So I would just teach it in private. And what would happen is students would come to me like, hey, this happened. And then we would brainstorm. And, you know, a lot of times uh, things didn't happen to me that happened to others. And we still had to kind of troubleshoot through there. And also, like, uh, people started developing their own variations. And, you know, the instructional was an accumulation of, of that brainstorming. Um, and as and as Matt pointed out recently, like uh, there was quite a bit, like there was I think four years in between the first and the second, or five years, and it was quite uh, you know quite quite similar but quite different at the same time, and it's still you know a, a work in progress. You know, and, you know when we return to the mats, you know we'll be back to brainstorming you know better ways to do it. Uh, you brought up the Kimura, and I know that you mentioned a lot of instructors are not so high on it and it's a personal favorite of yours and Vitor's and and and, and Jean's uh, why with regard to the criticisms of the Kimura one a, a very common one is that if your opponent is just strong enough you're not getting that arm what is your what would you respond to people who say that like is that you said it's a valid. There are valid criticisms. Would you consider something like that a valid criticism? What are the valid criticisms, in your opinion? Yeah, I think that's absolutely valid. You know, we've all been there. We have a strong grip, and the person just like either grabs their own arm or they grab their leg, and you know, it just feels like iron. You know, but I feel um, you know a lot of people they like to make the chess analogy in jujitsu, um, and. So a lot of them I agree with, a lot of them I disagree with, but, you know, if you look at uh, Kimura as a chess analogy, as soon as you get a Kimura grip on your partner, um, you have just checked them because, uh, you know, you can just hold on to it and, you know, you're attacking them, right? And they're automatically on the defensive. So from the strategic and uh, philosophical perspective, it's just, an, it's just a way to attack somebody. And that's just a start. And... Beyond that, you know, you can use it for, if you're on the bottom, uh, you can use it for sweeps, you can use it for back takes, you can use it for arm bars from the top, you can use it to pass the guard, you can use it to reverse takedowns. So it's such a versatile position, and I think it's a very strong uh, threatening position too, because, you know, let's say you're on top of half guard and you go for a Kimura, you know, the person on the bottom, uh, they may be super strong, but they still have to respect it as a valid submission threat. And while they're respecting the valid submission threat, then the guard is open for you. And then you just use it as a guard pass. So um, I think in a way it becomes a, uh, such a versatile and such a strong 
position and submission as well afterwards. Um, I wanted to talk to you about competitions in general. Uh, we're uh, primarily, I would say, a mixed martial arts combat sports site. We definitely are very heavily involved in Muay Thai and all the other combat sports as well. But when we talk about MMA, uh, you know, they always there's fight camps, there's game planning, there's all that stuff. And jujitsu obviously is a little bit, a lot different in the sense that there's a lot more tournaments and there are individual super fights uh, uh, organizations that come up and all that stuff. Do you think there's going to be a trend more towards uh, super fights in the future where we're going to see more fight specific camps come up uh, a lot more watching tape and game planning for specific opponents in jiu-jitsu do you think they'll they'll make that turn towards more of an mma uh style of competition or do you think they're really gonna stick with the tournament style uh first and then if they stick with the tournament style do you see fight specific game planning as important even in those tournament style matchups yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, and actually, um, I think uh, it's going to veer towards uh, more super fights, as you said, for two reasons. Um, the first is it was already kind of leaning towards that already. Like um, before, um, when, when I just started Jiu-Jitsu, I started in 2006. Um, there, were just, uh, there was Grappler's Quest, there was Naga, um, and there was IBJJF. Um, these were pretty much your your three choices. Uh, late, a little bit later, I, I I heard about Long Island Pride, and you know that was pretty much it. Um, and you know within the past couple of uh, years, we see like fights to win. Um, we see Third Coast. We see Polaris. We we saw Metamorphos. That was a little bit of a disaster, but it was there. <laughs> um, you know we saw we saw we see so many of these tournaments coming up, and you know and little by little, you know as I went to IBJJF tournaments, I saw less uh, less people there. And I think that was for a couple of reasons. Number one was because there were so many of these new tournaments that are coming up. And number two, because I think the IBJJF was kind of growing a little bit too quickly. You know, in, in 2009, 2010, there was one New York Open a year. And like, I remember one New York Open I, I tried to sign up for and I, I missed the registration and Shalin almost ripped my head off. He's like, dude, you know, there's only one a year. Like, how did you miss this registration? And now, like, there's like four or five out of, or something. There's like so many New York Open. So I think they were just growing too fast. Um, so I think that's going to be, uh, you know, uh, this is one thing that was happening. The numbers, the second is, you know, right now with the COVID-19, um, I'm not even sure when we're going to be able to have these large scale uh, tournaments where there's thousands of people, competitors and spectators. So for, the, for this reason and because a lot of those little tournaments that were like uh, sub only and you know kind of on the on uh, one on one you know super fights um, started to come up. I think for those two reasons, that's going to be the future. Um, and with that said, I think um, you know as we become more professional as fighters, um, we have to do tape study and we have to study our opponents. We we have to be knowledgeable. Um, it's no more just going in blind. You know uh, this kind of like old school mentality of I'll fight anybody anywhere. You know this is this hasn't been gone since 1985. You know, so I think we have to evolve. And, you know, as you said, we have to start, you know, studying our opponents, making real camps, you know, being real professionals about this. Do you think it's, uh, it's, it, uh, I mean, we know that there are a lot more tournaments that pay now. 
do you think with the more that happens, the, that's going to quicken the pace towards that as we, the, I guess, the pay scale for competitors increases? I mean, the, to be honest with you, the, you know, yes and no, you know, the problem is, um, the problem is this, the problem is that same as how IBGF started to really uh, grow and started to try to be like, you know, provide too many events. In my opinion, I think a lot of these uh, smaller sub only tournaments, uh, they saw the trend and they jumped on the bandwagon and a lot of them are not that ethical. They make you sell tickets. And if, if you don't sell tickets, they penalize you and they hound you for these tickets. And a lot of them are not very kind, to be honest with you. And um, unfortunately, uh, most fighters are, you know, they don't have that much money. They don't, you know, they don't know how to stand up for themselves. They don't know how to negotiate. They know how to do a Baron Bolo and they know the 411, you know, but they get taken advantage of. And, you know, I, I think this is kind of very sad. And I think what we need is we need more uh, legitimate tournaments um, that don't care about money um, and don't care about just, you know, jumping on the trend and actually want to promote the sport. And this is what we need. What we need. And fortunately, there have been some tournaments um, that came up that are ethical, uh, that I support. Um, but, you know, we definitely need much more of that to, for, to push this forward, you know, and, and uh, you know, keep the sport evolving. And to go along with your point, uh, you're a veteran of uh, EBI, of course. Uh, do you think there'll ever be another uh, tournament like that that gained so much popularity that quickly for jiu-jitsu athletes that helped uh, launch the careers of guys like Eddie Cummings, uh, Gordon Ryan, to a, to a certain extent, uh, Craig Jones? You know, like um, what happened with EBI was interesting because um, I was going to compete in the IBJJF World Championship, so I was going to be in California, and I had a, a, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Jamie, and he's like, hey, man, Eddie Bravo is going to do a tournament. I can refer you. Do you want to do it? And I was, I was like, Eddie Bravo tournament? You know, I was like, uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll do it. But I was kind of skeptical. And then when I did the first one, I did the very first one. I was still skeptical because I was like, man, this is so crazy. Like, you know, you so if, if, the, if there's no submission, someone's going to start on my back. You know, someone's going to start on an arm bar on me. And, you know, we're going to be on a stage. Like, it was just, it was so, so, so different in a good way than anything that I've ever experienced. And I think that is why it blew up the way it did, because pe people were like, whoa, like what is going on? This is so different than everything that everybody's used to. So I think, you know, something super, super drastic right now has to happen. You know, I don't know, like, uh, you know, I don't even have any ideas that are, you know, PG-13 that come to mind <laughs> right now, but it has to be something kind of radical and drastic for some, something like that to take off. And, you know, Eddie Bravo is, you know, a revolutionary and, you know, he's one of the best things to happen to jiu-jitsu and we need more people like him. You know, um, I wish, you know, there would be more, you know, Eddie, you know, regular jiu-jitsu tournaments. I know he's now focusing on combat jiu-jitsu, but, you know, I wish he comes out with something out of his, you know, magic hat and, you know, throw something at all of us with, you know, something new and fresh. Oh, uh, yeah, and you just talked about the, oh, sorry, sorry, Ben. I was going to say, Eddie's definitely not going to be short of any ideas considering the, uh, <laughs> the enhanced. The enhanced, if there's a performance enhancing drug for the mind, he's found it so, <laughs> and is on it. So I'm sure that he'll come up with something cooking. crazy. Yeah. And uh, you just spoke about the uh, EBI rules. Uh, what's your favorite rule set? Uh, we have uh, Gordon Ryan um, advocating for uh, combat wrestling uh, rules. Some people like the IBJJF, some people like EBI. I know uh, BJJ Fanatics uh, did a tournament with EBI rules. 
What's your uh, preferred rule set? I think the best rule set is uh, ADCC by far. You know, I think uh, it's exciting. I think it's uh, kind of uh, very fair where you can take a lot of risks in the beginning and you're not, you're not, you're, you're not going to be penalized for these risks. I think it encourages uh, takedowns. Uh, I like that every submission is legal. Um, you know, it's just, I think it's the best, the best rule set by far. Um, I, you know, a lot of fighters, you know, Gordon and many others, you know, they advocate for like old school style, like no time limit sub only. Um, I think that's really cool. Um, and yeah, it proves, you know, again, who's the best submission artist. And yeah, we're doing a submission sport. But it also turns into like an endurance match, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I loved personally watching Keenan and Gordon go for like an hour and a half. But at the same time, it's not the most realistic thing, too. Right. Um, so I think that's cool. But I definitely think, you know, ADCC, you know, is the best of both worlds and, you know, the fairest as well. And do you think that's applicable to uh, Gi as well or just solely for no Gi? Absolutely. I think it can be, you know, why not? I think it could be applicable for a Gi as well, you know, and. I would love to see a gi tournament that that uh, follows the you know that format as well. Quick question: uh, I hear both sides of this, but slams. Just in general, what's your position on slams? But both to get out of a submission, off a takedown, or throw. Are you for them, against them? Do you think it's important for schools to teach you how to defend or protect yourself from them? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you know, and I'm, I'm the most guilty of this as, as well, you know, but sport jujitsu, you know, it became a huge abstraction where, you know, you don't need takedowns to win. You know, you don't even need submissions to win. A lot of people are winning fights with advantages and with strategy. And this is, you know, great. This is how the rules were intended. Um, but, you know, if, uh, you know, to Gordon's and many other people's point where, you know, you, like the reason for the no time limit sub only is to show who the best submission person is. You know, also, uh, with that said, we should, be, you know, we should remember this is a fight. So because of that, I think slams are super, super legit. I think um, we should all be conscious of them. We shouldn't just like look at the referee like you can't slam me. You know, they're having the referee save us, you know. And, you know, I saw, you know, when I was, you know, starting jiu-jitsu, I saw uh, Ricardo Arona, uh, you know, doing the, the, the slam. And, uh, you know, that opened up my eyes like, yeah, when somebody's picking me up in a triangle, I need to know what to do um, when uh, so I don't get slammed, you know. So I think uh, we, we should learn it in a safe way. And I think it should be, you know, should be taught and, 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 and understood by everybody. Um, a, a question that I, I, I've, I asked actually uh, in, at Marcelo's once um, and it's got interesting looks. Uh, cheating. Um, what's your position on cheating and getting away with it, obviously, uh, to win? Because in MMA specifically, you know, you win, then you double your payday. So it's very common to see fighters take advantage of the rules in the best way. If they're going to get taken down, they grab the cage. If they can get away with an eye poke, they'll get away with it. If a leg kick goes a little high and hits you in the groin, they're not going to be sad about it. Uh, and there are some fighters that are notorious for their their cheating. Uh, while I understand it wouldn't be popular to be known as someone who cheats, do you think that do you are you necessarily against an, an athlete who is maybe in a position where they if they win that tournament they get thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to to win? 
Yeah, you know, um, my answer probably is going to surprise you. But um, my view on cheating and my view on steroids and my view on, my view on all of this is pretty, you know, I don't really care about it. Um, mm -hmm. Like, um, I think one of the best things about fighting and about martial arts is how uh, it's, it's all about you, you know, and it's about, you know, your performance. It's about, you know, what you're doing. And like, if we just like, you know, focus on the other person all day, um, you know, I don't think that's going to get us very far. And, you know, that's on them. If they want to cheat, if they want to use steroids, if they want to do whatever, that's their choice. And I don't really, I don't want, I don't, I don't really care. And if they get caught good and if they don't, if they don't get caught, hopefully they lost. And if they won, then good for them for not getting caught. Uh, Matt, I know you wanted to bring up, uh, we should absolutely discuss the founding of Master Skya, um, your philosophy on a donation-only gym, which is incredible. So, Matt, please. Yeah, where did the idea for uh, starting a donation-only gym, I believe you guys are still the first and only to ever go down that path. Uh, where did that idea come from? Actually, there's been quite a few. Like I, Mike Fowler, I think has a, a donation-based gym now. There's there's been, there's a few. There's one I think in, in um, North Carolina, maybe I forgot exactly. But uh, and um, there's there's been a few. And uh, just you know, just to kind of give a quick, uh, you know, just a uh, you know something important to say is um, you know Master Sky is you know a lot of people they say oh it's the donation-based gym, and I'm really happy about that. Like you know Van and I we speak about that often. Like we're really happy to like do something nice. But really, um, it doesn't really matter. You know, donation base is just uh, one way to make jujitsu affordable and accessible. And, you know, that's kind of what we believe in. We don't believe that it should just be, you know, for only the upper, you know, upper class or people that are wealthy or people that are well off, um, which it kind of evolved into for whatever reason, you know, like a jujitsu tournament is 100 bucks. A gi is like $150. Seminars are over $100 in judo. Um, it's different in judo, you know, tournaments are 30, $40 geese are 40, $50, you know, it's, everything is so much different. And, you know, I'm not sure why that happened to jujitsu and, um, the donation based idea just, you know, I used to go to this place called yoga to the people. Um, uh, maybe you guys have heard of it. Um, and they're donation based. And, uh, I thought it was really cool because I couldn't really afford it. And, you know, I would just give a few bucks, you know, here and there, I'll give the $10 suggested whenever I could. And I really liked the no pressure. And I was like, man, this is a really, really cool thing. And I was like, man, maybe we should do this in jujitsu. And then, you know, uh, originally I opened up the school with my good friend Ivor and Van came on a little bit later. Um, and Ivor and I had different programs and, um, you know, Ivor did his own thing and I did my own thing. And I was just like, you know, here's a box. If you guys want to, you know, put some money, put it in. But I don't really, I just want to teach jujitsu. I don't really want to, you know, chase people or sell people. And, you know, in that way it became a kind of a win-win for both, you know, myself and the, the students. And I know you uh, have a relationship with Google. How did that come about? Um, Google, so there was um, uh, a, a friend of mine. He became my friend. Um, his name is Dan. Uh, he's from California. And he, he would travel to New York to, uh, uh, you know, to train. And, uh, you know, we, we started to do a few privates. And then one day I was just talking to him. I was like, oh, how come you're always in New York or whatever? And he was like, oh, you know, because I'm, you know, I'm working in Google. And I think just jokingly, I, I asked him, I was like, oh, you know, you think you can get me in there? And he was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try. And, you know, the thing is, like, I'm used to this already. 
but so many people make empty promises that I never, you know, I just never care almost, you know, and if it happens, if it happens, it doesn't, I don't really mind, you know, and I just didn't even expect it. But, you know, Dan, he jumped through like a lot of like, you know, I'm going to be eternally grateful to him because he jumped through a lot of hoops. You know, he connected me to the uh, founder of the club uh, or not, maybe not the founder, but the head of the club named Lowell. And then, you know, uh, Lowell introduced me to the, the managers and then like, it was just like a whole, you know, chain. And then, you know, they ended up hiring Van and myself. Um, and it's, you know, been one of the coolest experiences in teaching Jiu-Jitsu that, that I, I know I've had. Yeah. And I've seen uh, your partnership with VHT, uh, sorry, VHTS. Uh, how did that come about as well? Because it seems like you're very connected within the Jiu-Jitsu world. Yeah, I, like I think that, you know, you know, there's this like meme that goes around on the Internet that like says like, you know, why are you going to, you know, uh, go pay $500 for a Kanye West concert and you're not going to support your own friend, like all of these kind of things. And that's why, like, I love supporting like RC and Focus Brand and, you know, all these other companies. Um, but VHTS, uh, you know, his name is Guy. And, you know, I know him since he's a white belt before he even started the company. He used to train at Shaolin's and we were always close friends. And when he started the company, I was like, let's do it. I'm going to help you. And I think, you know, I was one of his first sponsored athletes. Um, and then, you know, he just blew up. And, you know, I've been just enjoying seeing his success. And, you know, I'm really proud uh, to support him from the very first day when, you know, he was just, you know, like a nobody. And now he's like a really huge company. And, you know, it's really, really cool to be a part of that. Uh, ben, you have oh, anything? Just wanted to make sure that you were. Uh, yeah. So I, I wanted to specifically uh, ask you about Master Sky and the. Uh, I wanted to ask if there's any difference that you perceived, or at least from when you started, maybe to now, in teaching in an environment that is donation based only. Because when you when you pay for a gym, you you're already you're, you're, the dynamic changes. I would say. Uh, whether you let's say I went to a gym and I happened to know the gym owner and I became a part of their gym, whether I'm friends with them or not beforehand, there's now a difference in the relationship in the sense that I'm paying for a service he's providing. He's my instructor. I'm his student. Uh, I'm paying him for that service, whatever it might be. It could change that relationship. And obviously when I'm learning in that class, there's that dynamic of instructor and, and student. Mm -hmm. Did you experience when you first started Master Sky, did you have any a different or an, a, a experience anything different in the way you had your master instructor uh, relationship with Vitor or Jean with your students, I guess, at Master Skaya? Yeah, it was it was very different, you know, and it's uh, even, you know, um, you, you just mentioned to me and, and embarrassed me slightly because you were like, hey, you remember me? Like, <laughs> I kind of remember you, but not really, you know, and it's all good. You know, uh, and, you know, that's the issue because, um, you know, since we have no, you know, uh, I am I am not like, uh, you know, super famous like Marcelo and like Henzo and like Shalin. So like those gyms, yeah, they have an influx of visitors, but um, uh, almost all other small gyms don't really have that, I think. You know, they just have like their, you know, solid core where everybody knows each other. But Master Skaya, uh, because we have this kind of like no contracts and we have all these, you know, every, everything is a drop-in basically. Um, we have such a huge influx of visitors and we have people from all the academies in New York City training with us that drop in like some people, you know, once a week, some people once a month. We have people from so many places that are, you know, coming in. Um, so I think that was a really cool thing 
meeting so many people and you know uh somebody once gave us a compliment they were like hey you guys are kind of like switzerland you know <laughs> like you know you're kind of like just cool with everybody you're like yeah and we have like a lot of black belts a lot of brown belts like uh, matt will tell you we have so many visitors that come in from all over the place I don't even know who these people are or how they found out about us, but I love it. And, you know, I'm so fortunate to have them drop by and, you know, share techniques with us and roll with us. Um, and I think that's kind of like the coolest thing. So I, I would say we're like we are like a, a regular school, but we're also kind of like a club. And we're also like just like, an, uh, you know, huge open mat at the same time where, you know, people can just come in whenever they want to. You're kind of like yeah. a you uh, should... sorry. I would just yeah. say you're kind of like that. Uh, yeah. And all these. Uh, no, no one to watch it, but there's you kind of like that uh, island in the middle that everyone could just kind of like, okay, no more dream, no gym drama here, no this. Uh, you train at this school, you train at that school. Who cares? We're all here together. We train and we go back and we can hate each other afterwards. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. I was just I, I, I had the privilege of training with Master Sky this summer, and I can't agree more uh, with Alex said. Uh, it felt like family, uh, and that's all you can ask for for a jiu jitsu gym. And you have two locations now, so that's actually pretty uh, something worth noting is that you've managed to make two donation-only locations. Yeah. How are you? Uh, do you do you own the building that it's in? Do you own the area that it's in? Is it someone who's just being really generous with rent? How is it working? How is that working out? Uh, things would be a lot easier if I owned it. If if you know my original idea, like. Um, you know, and I think it's good that it didn't happen, maybe, or maybe one day it will happen. But my original idea was to be like uh, Mr. Miyagi, like, and this is for real, I'm not joking. But my original idea was uh, to find a place where I live. I live in the place and it's 24 seven and people can just come in and train whenever, like there would be kind of organized times to train mm -hmm. and uh, there would be no monetary uh, payments like you can't pay for the classes or anything like that there would be no money and you would barter with people so you know somebody like let's say somebody makes bread okay they bake bread for you and like let's say somebody's a yoga instructor okay they're going to teach you yoga so it's like a huge bartering system and since i live there like you know it wouldn't be that much of a burden on me and then i would you know find you know a way to you know make up for the rent or whatever you know but yeah probably not the greatest idea i've had and i don't know if it would be sustainable um, but that was kind of my original idea but just reminding me that since you asked to find the building um, but we don't own the buildings um and we pay rent like everybody else and you know we uh we did have to make a change because in the very beginning um uh people like uh, uh people uh, some people didn't uh, donate at all unfortunately and um uh so then we um you know we we try to be as honest to everybody as possible um, but I think what people misunderstood is, um, like, you know, I'll go like the class is a suggested donation of 10 bucks. Um, people thought, um, I think that it's either $10 or nothing. And, um, for, for whatever reason, a lot of people like didn't pay and we were still able to survive because, you know, I had some close friends that, you know, really believed in the vision and that supported me behind the scenes. So, uh, I was able to pay the rent and stuff like that. But later, uh, we change it slightly. So some classes have now like suggested donation, and some classes have minimum donation. So the the minimum donation is still uh, fifteen dollars per class. So it's like still two or three times cheaper than any other class in New York City. Um, and um, more than half of our classes are suggested donations. So people can come and still do pay nothing or pay whatever. Um, but that's how we're able to stay afloat, and that's how we're able to pay all the instructors. Uh, no one uh, works for us for any favors. Um, and we're very proud of that. And, uh, you know, that's how Van and I are able to support ourselves as well. 
do you want to expand it further? How and if yes, where would you like to expand next? Because right now you have uh, Decal Avenue, which is in downtown Brooklyn, I think, and yeah. then you have Bushwick as well. If you have a place where you'd like to go next, where is it? No specific places. Do you want a third, fourth, fifth location to make this kind of like? You can make it. Hopefully, that'd be amazing if you could pull off a donation only chain of gyms across the country that'd be fantastic but what is your vision for yeah, the no actually we were we were we were working before the closure of the current mm -hmm. situation we were on our way to affiliate with more locations and you know open up uh, more locations a lot of people uh, support us and you know believe in our vision and you know they believe in us which is really cool um uh you know van and i are our partners in it together um I, I, I don't know if he agrees with me. Like, I think I like I say it and I'm just like, you know, it's kind of like my dream. Mm -hmm. I, you know, he supports it, but I don't know if, like if he if it's also his dream is what I'm trying to say. But um, actually, uh, I haven't talked about it to many people, but um, what I want to do is open up in South America and Southeast Asia um, and have. Uh, and that's actually just a selfish thing, too. You know, like like, all right, let's go to Dominican Republic. You know, and train for a few months. You know, and like, and also like uh, uh, Southeast Asia. Like, I really love Thailand. You know, I I I, uh, I haven't been to the Philippines yet, but that's my dream to go over there. Um, but you know, it'd be kind of cool to be based out of like New York, America, and both of those places. Make like a little you know pyramid. Uh, I have to ask about your MMA fight because I mean we have to. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, did you enjoy it? Did you enjoy training for it? Tell us about your training, where you trained, how long you trained before it, uh, whether you would ever do it again. Um, yeah, so I mean, my, my MMA journey was kind of like, um, it was, it was a, a little bit difficult because what happened was um, um, I, I decided I wanted to do MMA and I was already a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. So uh, one of my mentors and coaches, Charlie, um, he's a Muay Thai coach. Um, he was like, hey, you know, like, I'm going to train you and then you should, you know, train in Muay Thai with Koban, who's a living legend. And uh, unfortunately, he just closed his gym. Uh, but, I, you know, that's why I went to train. And uh, I started training there and I actually started fighting in Muay Thai. I had five Muay Thai fights and then I actually went to Thailand and I lived there for a few months to train. I really fell in love with Muay Thai. And after that, um, I was like, all right, let me um, do an MMA fight. And I think... I think Shalin had just given me my black belt, actually. So I was like in this weird spot where, you know, my coaches didn't think I was ready to have a pro fight. And they were like, okay, just do like a couple of amateur fights and then maybe you can go pro. Um, and I was training in Long Island MMA. And um, what happened was like all of my like fights kept uh, getting canceled. Like I kept scheduling MMA fights and people would pull out or people would not accept it because on paper it was not a good fight. Like. I'm a black belt in jiu-jitsu um, and it's like, why would they fight me? And I have, I'm an own own MMA. So um, I just couldn't get a fight. And the only uh, person that fought me um, was this per was this uh, young kid. He was maybe 18 or 19. His name was Turpal. And he's a, like a, in a good way, like a crazy kid from K-Dojo. He's like one of these like really, I don't know if he's from Dagestan, but he's from one of the, you know, one of those uh, uh, countries um, in, in Eastern Europe. And he didn't care. And he came and, you know, he beat me up on the feet. And actually, I ended up popping his arm, I think, in the second round. And he didn't tap. Um, and I was like, bl blood was all over my face, you know. And, you know, he, he cut me up pretty nicely. And uh, in the third round, I ended up uh, going for that same arm. 
Um, and I got a Kimura on that same arm, like a straight arm lock Kimura, and he actually tapped because his arm was already, the ligaments were already, I think, torn. Um, so that was my one and only fight. And, uh, you know, I had this, you know, this huge scar under my eye. And that night I went to, you know, my, uh, you know, my, my ex-girlfriend and I, we came into Manhattan, we went to Dunkin' Donuts, we ate some donuts, and then we went to the hospital, you know, to get it stitched up. You know, and then, uh, that, you know, definitely it was an experience, like it was much easier thinking about it from my couch than being in there, you know, fighting. And I have the utmost respect for MMA fighters and for old people doing those camps. You know, that's no joke. You know, that takes, you know, a lot, a lot of hard work. Um, do you, based on that experience, I'm assuming it's fair that that you, the way you spoke about that, it sounds like that was the last fight you're going to you doing well what happened was at this point um i was just training full time mm -hmm. and i was teaching i was teaching my own program in koban's muay thai gym i was teaching a jiu-jitsu program so i was able to go to long island mma i was able to train jiu-jitsu with shellen and i was able to train muay thai with koban and um uh what happened was i had some issues in koban uh where i decided that you know i should like teach on my own and then i opened up uh, master skaya and then i was training for a fight and i got hurt so the fight got canceled and then, you know, just running the gym just became too big of a responsibility. And I didn't feel like I could properly train to fight in professional MMA. And, you know, another close friend and mentor of mine, you know, would call me all the time and be like, Alex, stop being stupid. You know, you're, you know, the only thing you have is your brain, you know, so stop getting hit in the head. And, you know, I thought about it and I started doing more like pro jujitsu fights. And um, I'm glad I did that one MMA fight, but um, I probably won't do another one, um, but that may change, you know, who knows? I, 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 I still have the itch, you know, I'm still like shadow boxing when nobody's looking. So, you know, I, I still have that itch. Matt? Uh, you spoke glowingly of uh, your time in Thailand. Uh, do you follow any uh, Thai, uh, Thai fights today still, or is it just a, a past hobby? No, I like, um, for me, like, uh, and, and I hope this doesn't get taken out of context or gets taken the wrong way. But for me, watching like Muay Thai pad work videos is like equivalent of porn. Like <laughs> late at night, late at night, I'm watching just like like hours of just like Muay Thai, like slow. I don't even know who these people are. I have no idea. Random people in Thailand and people all over the world like doing pad work. And I love doing pad work. I love sparring. Um, I, I don't follow the sport as closely as I follow jujitsu. But um, I'm just always watching highlights. I'm always watching random fighters. Um, I know a lot of the, the past fighters from, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago. Um, I know a couple of modern fighters, but I'm not like that actively following it. You know, Matt, you yeah, I think you and Ryan articles. would get along pretty well. Yeah, you got to send me some, some <laughs> of Ryan's that? articles. Ryan yeah, is, uh, yeah. yeah, we have a Muay Thai uh, Enthusiast would be an understatement. All right. Uh, yeah. he, he has, he is, we, I mean, the articles he's put together uh, are just unreal. Like he's so good. I, I, I can't, I can't state how, how amazing they are. Uh, he makes you want to be a better writer. So, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll definitely, <laughs> I'll definitely send, uh, send you some of send his uh, Muay Thai work. Absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I have blast. So I, I don't have any more questions, but um, I do, I guess the last thing I would ask you is, uh, God willing, you know, all this passes sooner than later. Uh, and I'm assuming, like you said, there's going to be some super fights and stuff like that. 
before this happened, was there anybody who you really, who you had your eye on? Not necessarily you might be in the limelight who, or a huge name right now, but somebody who you swing is, there's somebody to keep an eye on coming up in the jiu-jitsu world. The, that I wanted to fight or that I study? Let's do both. Um, I stu- uh, that I wanted to fight, I don't have anybody. Um, I don't really, I don't really look at it like that. Um, mm-hmm. Again, as, as I mentioned previously, I look at martial arts and I look at as myself as a competitor. I, I, it's, it's purely internal, mm-hmm. you know, and when I go to a tournament, it's purely to test myself. And, you know, whoever's in front of me is just whoever's in front of me. And I'm just trying to do my game on them. When I study them, it's just some things that I, you know, things that I, that I should be alert about. But I don't like dwell too much about it. Um, so I don't have anybody that, you know, that comes to mind, um, you know, in that respect. Um, as far as people that I, that I study, um, I study a lot of people. Actually, uh, I've been studying a lot of the Rotulo twins. Um, I think you know they, they, they've been super interesting in how they utilize super basic um, guard passing to neutralize and beat a lot of like top uh, leg lockers and a lot of top guard players. And uh, also, they you know, they're some of the only ones that are doing some pretty intricate like uh, foot trapping and you know, angles and, you know, the different chain, guard pass chains. So I was watching a lot of them um, up, uh, as up-and-comers. Um, also, I mentioned briefly before, William Tackett is somebody um, that I watched uh, quite a, uh, you know, quite a bit, uh, you know, before. Um, other than that, it's uh, probably all the other people that everybody else uh, studies too. Um, I think highly of, you know, a, a lot of the Henzo Danaher people. I think very highly of, you know, our Australian friends. Um, I think... Uh, John Thor Blank is somebody that's extraordinary to study. I really love his game. Um, and I think uh, some people that uh, to study that people forgot about are like the Mendes brothers, um, Cobrinha, Leo Vieira, like, so, you know, some of these people that are, you know, way ahead of their time, you know, are also worth um, looking into as well. Yeah, not to start a whole uh, other metagame conversation, but you just talked about how the Rutolo brothers were able to avoid leg locks uh, using primarily like their Dars and front headlock game. Do you think that is going to come uh, become more prominent as a way to not avoid uh, leg lock exchanges, but to at least even the odds for someone who's potentially not as comfortable in uh, those positions? Yeah, I think if, if we if we were to take like a Muay Thai analogy and, and uh, flip it to jujitsu, like actually I I, I make a look quite a bit of like striking um uh like metaphors and the reason is um that i think striking is just kind of easier to understand even for like a day one white belt like sometimes like jujitsu is like just too intricate like what's going on but for example in muay thai we have uh punches we have kicks we have knees and we have elbows right and let's say somebody is a very strong uh knee or an elbow fighter all right kick them and keep them and you know keep them at bay and let's say somebody's really good at you know kicks Okay, close the distance and knee them and elbow them. You know, it's like it's a two-way street, right? So um, I think what's what, what was happening is a lot of the leg lockers, they were like, uh, what, what was happening is when people were fighting a leg locker, they were trying to like just leg lock each other. You know, it would just be leg lock for leg lock, kind of back and forth. And people were trying to see who can catch each other first. Um, and that's kind of the equivalent of, you know, a kicker against the kicker, you know, a puncher against the puncher or a person that's elbowing against a person that's elbowing. But I think what you said... Um, that I agree with completely is, yeah, you can use chokes to fight against leg locks, or you can use back takes to fight against leg locks, or you can use like uh, arm locks to fight against leg locks. You know, you know, putting yourself in positions where you're threatening the person. If I have a kimura on you, 
and uh, it's going to be much harder for you to uh, set up a leg attack. You first have to strip the Kimura grip before you can start to go for a leg entanglement. And I think the Rotolo twins um, were doing a great job with you know the front headlock, the Darces, Anacondas, and, and and all that kind of stuff. So I agree completely, and I think we're gonna we should see more of that as well. Essentially, don't fight them where they're best. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Or then, or be under the assumption that you're just a little bit better at them, and you'll catch them slipping. You know, which can work too. Um, where can everyone find your stuff? Uh, your Instagram. I know you're a Grappler's Guide expert. Um, what's the best way to get in contact with you uh, to visit Master Skya? I'm the easy. I'm the easiest person to find. I'm in Brooklyn all the time. Um, so you can these days you can find me in Prospect Park a few days a week. Uh, before that, you would find me in one of the two gyms. I was you know teaching and training seven days a week. Um, but as far as the internet goes, my Instagram is Alex Master Skya. Um, uh, and Master Sky is spelled the word master, the word sky, and the letter A. Um, and you can also email me at A and then my last name, which is E-C-K-L-I-N-Eklin at gmail.com. Um, actually, a lot of people think my last name is Master Sky, but it's not. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, so definitely you can email me. Um, I stopped giving my phone number out because I get too many late night texts about, about you know, leg locks. So, you know, I, I stopped, you know, but yeah, email me and I'll answer promptly. <laughs> Matt, tell uh, before right. before we go, anything you want to plug? I just uh, I have a Andres Bernafkis uh, Omoplata article uh, that should be out soon. Um, grateful that Fight Site uh, hired me to be a writer, uh, and then there might be a Calcor Galaxy um, uh, breakdown uh, with his fights with Sun Kill Moon. So uh, just be on the look for that. Alex, I can't thank you enough for doing this, uh, and I'm happy you're the first jujitsu guy we have on. Uh, on our podcast. Thank you guys. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Matt. Matt, happy birthday. Everybody. Thank you. Birthday. All right. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait to come back and train at Master Sky. Absolutely. I think we're both on the same page there. Uh, thank you both so much for joining. Uh, ben Cohn, this was the fight site. Uh, this is another one of our, I would say this was an awesome interview. Make sure you check out the site. Great articles, great content. Check out the fight site on Patreon. Support us if you can. And if you can't, tell your friends. Maybe they can. Uh, make sure that you all stay safe. Uh, social distancing. Uh, listen to doctors and medical advice as much as you can. If you have symptoms, make sure you call your doctor. See what they tell you to do. Everyone stay safe. Thank you both again for joining us, uh, joining me, and have a great night. Thank you, Ben. Thank have you. A good night. You guys too. Take care.